Hello and welcome to the Frank and Fearless Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Harris. Uh, today, I am joined by Scott MacArthur. Now, I remember very distinctly sitting and having a conversation with Scott uh, about uh, the world and what I love about Scott, and you're going to hear this in today's episode, is he is such a divergent thinker. Um, he has done lots of different things in his life. Um, and the way that he articulates and the way that he he thinks and the way that he feels about things, for me, uh, is very different to a lot of other people. The other thing is as well, um, he speaks his mind and I love it. I love him for being frank and fearless. So if uh, if there is a few swear words, I don't mind. Um, so uh, Scott, let's just kick let's kick off. Um, you you've had uh, an array of different skills and things that you've done over the years. Just share with the audience what's yeah. the one or two highlights for you of situations where you've lo- looked at it and gone, "How the hell did I end up doing this?" Hello, it's lovely to see you, Adam. Um, that's a good. That's a good question. Uh, okay, um, at the beginning of my career, I went from university, and like like all you know, science graduates, I went straight into working in a kilt maker because that's the standard thing you do when you have a science degree. You know, you start working in a kilt maker, uh, and that's because I couldn't find a job and in science it was very difficult and back then it was extremely difficult it's much easier now thankfully but back then it was difficult but then eventually i i got myself into a scientific job where i was researching um arthritis and alzheimer's and a little bit of anthrax a little bit of hiv so i did quite a lot of different things in the laboratories and there's a thing that happens in proper science where you get published and I'm not talking about getting published in a management magazine or a, you know, pop psychology magazine. When you get published in a, a very good quality scientific uh, literature, you know, magazine, if you like, journal. And after two years, I was, I'd been working on, <clears throat> it doesn't really matter, but basically it was, it was about fluid dynamics and microscopy um, and we wrote a paper about it and I remember my professor's secretary coming into the laboratory and I was up to my balls and bits of human being, you know, dead humans. Um, cause literally I was working with human remains and, um, she said to me, she said, Oh, the, the papers just arrived and she handed me this envelope, brown envelope. And it was my sort of pack of 50 copies of this paper. I'd been published before, so I wasn't that excited about it. I was pleased about it. But anyway, I opened it up and I pulled out the paper and the title, blah, 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 by, and it said, Scott MacArthur and Professor Dougal Gardner. Being published as a first author when you're 22 in a AAA scientific journal, I couldn't believe it. I still can't believe it that he did that. Because that professor, who became very important in my life, but he didn't need to put me as the first author, but he did. And I'll never forget it. That 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 was definitely a moment that um, I could, I'm feeling quite emotional. I, nobody's asked me that question before, so I, I haven't, so very rarely I've told that story. In fact, I don't think I've ever told that story um, before. Um, so, so you... Yeah, well... So I just want to touch on that then. So... 
Uh, you said he's played a very important part of your life. Yeah. Did you ask him why he put you first? Um, I did, and he said you deserved it, which was fair enough because I'd done all the research and done most of the writing. Um, but in the scientific domain, it doesn't work like that. You know, you you, you have to go through. There's, there's almost a ritual you have to go through, and it's a painful ritual, and it's one the the public just doesn't unfortunately doesn't get enough information scientists are quite poor at communicating about it but getting published in a quality scientific journal is extremely difficult and he then let me and this is where it got even more difficult because the other thing that the public again don't really understand is you then go through there's a thing called peer review which is uh i think the greatest invent invent the scientific method from in my opinion is the greatest achievement in human history there's nothing compares to the scientific method um but then the other thing that happens is you publish the paper and you've already been through, you know, your peers, my professor's peers reviewing that paper to say, no, it's a load of rubbish or the methodology doesn't work or you need to tweak this or maybe think about that, Scott. But then you get the feedback from the scientific community and it's brutal. It is brutal. And they pride themselves in being brutal It's part of the process. And he let me deal with that as well. And I have to be honest, I had no idea. And then many years later, not long before he died, because he died at 93, about two years ago, just before COVID, Adam. And he said to me, he said, I thought you were up to it. You weren't. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't because it was, it was all these professors from all over the world giving me hell. And I had to go to him and say, help. I just didn't have the depth of knowledge, but it was a step on a ladder. And he gave me it and he didn't need to do it. And that, I, I mean, most people who get to that stage are, are in their, their mid to late 20s, not their early 20s. So it was a, it was a real boost for me. Uh, I'm not sure I really understood it, really how much of a boost it was, even at the time. I do now, but, um, but back then I had like long hair and Guinness were my priorities, you know, um, and, Guinness, and and music. And, um, and I think now when I look back, I go, God, he did not need to do that. And I really appreciate it. And to this day, it's just magical. It's up in the wall uh, down the corridor here. So what what's fascinating there is, is that, you know, uh, when I speak to a lot of leaders, there's this aspect of um, mentors. And, you know, the, the, the word can be used in, in a number yeah. of different ways. I suppose what I'm talking about here is one or two times in your life, there's been somebody that has... Um, seen something in us that we can't necessarily see, yeah. uh, and are supported, and I definitely hear it in that in that story. So let me let me flip yeah. it to the other side. Is can you remember a time where you've consciously done something similar with somebody else, where you've in theory been that mentor, and you've pushed them, supported them, challenged them to be a better version of themselves, and whether that be conscious or subconscious. Right, I remember. Um, <laughs> this was this was quite it was quite a a, a risk, but I, I was working um, I think for KPMG at the time, and we'd been commissioned to do some work with Marks and Spencers, and Marks and Spencers don't like external consultants. They they they've never done it in their in their in, certainly in the last thirty years. They've they've not been very keen on externals. One of the problems I think they've, is they've been scared of external perspectives but we managed to get in and 
I was sitting, I was, I was asked to, I, I worked as a, a head of change programs for, for KPMG, so I used to run these big programs. And I was asked to have a look at one of the guys, his name's Stuart, and basically Stuart was in the top three and was one of the favourites to be the chief executive of, of, of M&S. And they asked me, the board asked me to have a look at him and give them an opinion. So I went into this meeting, um, and it was with Stuart, another guy called a guy called yeah, another guy called Stuart, and a, and an array of 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 others from the change program. And I went in and just basically sat in the room. They didn't even know who I was, to be honest. And then walked the boss man Stuart, and he sat down and he looks around the room and he started to talk about how important he was, basically, and how how they all had to do what he wanted them to do, and. Um, you know, he, he, he behaved like a plonker, to be honest, Adam. It was, it was not impressive. And I'm thinking, well, this guy's an idiot. You know, I'm not having this. This is a bully. You know, this is somebody that there is no way I'd want him as my boss. And, and, I, and I just don't like him. Didn't like him at all. So at the end of the meeting, um, we finished up and there was a, the, the other steward did a sort of next steps, classic consulting type stuff. And... Um, and just as we're all leaving, I said to the boss, Stuart, I said, could I have a word? And he kind of looked me up and down and said, well, who the hell are you? And I said, well, can I have a word? And he did step back and he said, OK. So everyone left. And I said to him, I said, how do you think that went? And he said, well, I got across what I wanted to say. I think they understand what we need to do. Yeah, it went OK. Who are you to ask me that anyway? And I said, oh, I, I'm, I'm one of the, I'm leading the transformation program over in procurement. Oh, are you? And he really was like, you know, couldn't give a monkey's who I was. And I said, can I give you some feedback? And he kind of looked at me and he didn't want it. And he went, oh, yeah, all right, he said. I said, I thought you were an absolute arsehole. And I actually said that. And he, he looked at me and he said, would you let me tell you why you were an arsehole? And this was a really interesting moment because Stuart then looked at me and went, who the, f and he stuck, and I, and I was right at him. I was, I was not, you know, I'm not shy as I think you know. And he went, why? I said, well, I think you behaved like an absolute idiot in that meeting. I think you were a bully. I thought people were scared of you. Would you like me to go on? And this is a moment that I'm, I, I'm proud of Stuart. He said, I would like you to go on. Let's go and have a beer. That moment, it's like, you know, a G, I call it a G-string moment, Adam. You know, it could go either way. It could go really well or it could go really badly. <laughs> and because Stuart said to me, let's go for a beer, and we went down. It was it was in the, the Paddington Basin where their headquarters is now. Um, and we went to this terrible wine bar and we sat down and we had a couple of pints. In fact, we had three or four in the end. And I gave him a full debrief about how, how much of an arsehole he was and how much of a bully he was and you know what he was utterly devastated right he'd never met me before but no because he was a I mean in the food industry and I've, I've been lucky to work in the food industry both as a, man, as a manufacturer and as a and it turns out 19 years at M&S believe it or not after that experience um, nobody had ever said to him you can't behave like that and I just had the balls to do it. And I don't know where that came from either. I've got no idea whether that's sort of Gallus Glasgow 
personality or something, but he he really took it on the chin and we've been very good friends ever since. And he's now a chief executive of another company. You know, he moved on from M&S, but um, he's now running one of the biggest uh, suppliers, manufacturers that Marks and Spencer's have in, in, in Europe. So, yeah, that, that was probably... And he, to this... I remember, and to close the circle, about six years ago, seven, well, maybe five years ago, yeah, five years ago, he was, he asked me, he was the uh, head of manufacturing at the point, at that point, he's very, very senior in M&S, sort of third, second or third in control, and he asked me to keynote at his an annual conference, and I arrived a bit late, because I'd been doing something at another company that morning, and I arrived at this, this place in London, big fancy conference suite, uh, walked in. There's Stuart up on the on the stage, and he's doing his usual sh stuff, and he's he's a transformed character. Anyway, he turned and he saw me, and he went right, and and he went really quiet, and he went, "This guy changed my life," and he was he was crying. Never forget it. How, Never how forget did it. you feel when he when he was sharing that with the audience? Well, I was incredibly humbled, and I don't like the. I'm not a humble person, you know. I'm not into that humble bragging yep. nonsense. Um, but it was like bloody hell. I, I I knew I'd had an impact on him. I was assured that, that I'd made a huge impact because I, I would never have thought he would have shown vulnerability in front of his entire team. And there's 400 people in that room, and I would never have thought Stuart would ever have done that, and he did it. And well done him so I was delighted I was so happy for him because he'd, he'd been through a proper metamorphosis and I don't like the, I'm, I'm bored with the word transformation now everybody's using it and it's meaningless so I use I use the biological term because I'm a biologist by, by training metamorphosis you can't if you go from a beetle to a butterfly or from a whatever to a whatever you can't go back right and I think he truly metamorphosized you know into a different character and he is a lovely person lovely person and i'm dead chuffed to have been a little bit of opening that up a bit so there's just a couple of things i want to take from that so you know for those listening to this two things one um just want you to reflect on the one two three people in your life that have been a mentor who were who were yep. they and what have they done for you maybe it's an opportunity to remember uh and and reach yep. out to them um the second thing is is think about the people that you've that you've helped and supported. Um, I remember somebody, Scott, I remember somebody saying to me, never underestimate the impact that you can have on somebody else. Um, and, you know, we we often find ourselves in situations where we think we're just doing, you know, especially as, as, as speakers and, you know, coaches, consultants, is that, you know, we're, we're, we're employed to do the work, but actually sometimes the, yes. the connection and the impact that we have with other people goes beyond that. And I don't think sometimes we realize that uh, ever, or sometimes yeah. until kind of um, till, till years later. Um, let, let's kind of move on. So um, some of your topics that you speak about uh, and you spend time working with individuals and organizations uh, are quite interesting yeah. and different and opinionated. And that's why I love I love you for yeah. it because you are for me you epitomise yeah. this the concept of being frank and fearless. So let let me start with that. What does frank and what is being frank and fearless to you? What does it mean? Um, I, I got that in the brief beforehand, and I thought about it, and I thought, well, who's Frank? <laughs> I'm sure you've heard yep. that before. Um, but um, I 
I would summarise that a good Glasgow word, and that word is gallus. And being gallus means being willing to to go up and ask a stranger a question, or go up and tell someone what you think, or go up and just, you know, honesty. The word authenticity is overused, so I won't use that, but it, it's, it's kind of... You, you mean, when I, where I grew up was a council estate outside Glasgow and everybody would come up to you. Honestly, there was like standard lines everybody had and, I, and I'll say it in Scots and I'll translate it, but one of them one of them was, how you doing, big man? What's your story? And that was a classic, how are you? What are you all about? Introduction from the age of five. You know, it was, it was, it was you were hardwired with that, Adam. It was like, you know, that's how everybody started the conversation. And it, it was often linked, there was often little secrets behind it about religion or about, you know, money or whatever. And there was all sorts of stuff, nonsense floating about. But I think that probably, because I'm actually not that confident a person. I mean, I come across as, you know, having very strong opinions and I do have strong opinions, but I'll change my mind. <laughs> so I say to people, I've got strong opinions gently held because I will change my mind. You know, and I think a lot of people are on train tracks and they find it very... And I was on a train track, so mentors helped me get off of that train track. But I was on a train track. I was heading for heavy industry because everybody in my family were either fishermen in the Navy or worked in heavy engineering, you know, and I, I jumped off of that train and it bloody hurt. Um, but I got off of that because of a mentor, so... Who was frank and fearless, you know? So um, I'm not sure I've answered your question, but I've at least tried. So being gallus... Just being gallus, getting into it, and all and, uh, Just, just for our listeners that um, may not be fully aware of uh, of Glasgow, can you just share with uh, with them what a Glasgow kiss is? <laughs> well, a Glasgow kiss is where you. Uh, I, I, I can't really say it without speaking Scott. You stick the heat in somebody, so it's where you bash them in the head with your head. That's a Glasgow kiss. So, if, so if you didn't like somebody, you'd give them a Glasgow kiss. Boff. Uh, and off they would go with her with her nose bleeding. And, and just 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 <laughs> while we're on the subject, um, uh, when was the last time that you had a deep fried Mars bar? Ah, uh, that's an English oh, thing. I, oh, okay. Oh, I, I I stand yeah. corrected. That, yeah, that that was a, an affectation. That was an Italian uh, chip shop owner who basically made deep fried fried Mars bars to take the Mickey out of the English because he. He knew if he made them, the English would think they were real and they would buy them, and they did. So you can buy them all over Scotland now. But they're actually nonsense. Scots never had deep fried. I mean, they did have deep fried yep. pizza. <laughs> so that did. That was a true thing. They're a deep fried Mars bars. Actually, a, a, a dig at the English. Nothing else. Um. So, uh, started off making kilts. Uh, years uh in the manufacturing space. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, as well as lots of other things. How did you get into yeah. uh, the kind of change management and then kind of into doing what you do now with regards to kind of working with organisations from a leadership perspective? Well, when I left the laboratories, I went from uh, human remains to human resources. And that happened because I was numerate. So I just fell into HR uh, because I was new at it and ended up working in that field. And after 15 years in HR, and I was an HR director for uh, leisure companies and uh, construction companies, service companies, and I went around the, the block, really. 
I was asked by my another mentor of mine, a chap called Jim, Jim Douglas, uh, to join uh, Capgemini. And at the same time, I was asked to join KPMG. And that's because I was working on this massive project. Uh, I was the head of HR for Northern Foods. Um, and basically, they said, you'd make a good consultant. I had no idea what a consultant was. In fact, I find them really annoying. Um, but they were far too smart for their own good. Um, but then I got asked to do it. So I, jo- I actually then joined KPMG. And... By heck, that was a shock. Um, so I went from having 160 people working for me to being bottom of the, the rung, but getting paid three times the salary I was getting when I was working for, for Northern Foods. It was just bizarre. Um, and what happens there is that they have a, what they call the T model. And basically you have a depth, something you're really strong at. And my strength was in HR, organisational development. But you also have to have the top of the T. So you have two other disciplines that you have to get up to speed very quickly so that you come across as a very proficient person. And my two were procurement and change management. And I very, very quickly, I mean, my first project was with um, the Ministry of Defence. I was three years with the MOD. It was an amazing project. And that was a procurement transformation piece. We saved enough money for the MOD every week to build a primary school. That's how amazing it was. It was unbelievable. It was it was an absolute privilege to be involved in that project. But then during that, I realised, and sort of slightly long-winded answer to your question, Adam, but I realised that change management was probably the space where I could make most impact for organisations. And because my background was, I, I, I'm trained as a biologist, but I also did psychology. And then I did, a, uh, I did two postgraduate degrees in psychology. I knew that I knew stuff about that space. So I started to work. So my T became a slightly thicker T uh, moving from sort of HROD and change management. And that's kind of how I get into it. And then um, for the next 10 years, I was involved in trans- what they call transformation programs, all based on uh, big IT. So, you know, SAP, Oracle, all the big systems, which are a load of bloody nonsense, to be honest. But the, but the, but the interesting thing was that the you could actually help an organisation to change a little bit. Very few companies change at all, but you could help them change a little bit uh, by using some of the techniques that that you know that come from the the more psychological domain. So that's kind of how I got into it, um, and how I became. Uh, I then became one of the leaders in that company because I was. I was famous for being a storyteller, but also for being creative in my thinking because I was able to draw from my scientific career, my HR career, my musical stuff, and bring that all together to give different perspectives on, uh, you know, the client experience. So that's how I became what was called the impact head of impact, which was um, basically a creative team that were looking at, you know, how do we win what we called mega deals. So it was deals at that time between 300 million and a billion dollars. Um, and it was how to how to get creative in that space. So to do a bid for something that's like 500 million pounds takes about a year, a year and a half even. And it was how to be creative in that space. So my team, my job was to eventually help them, help the client see that we were different to the other suppliers because it was a it was a, a, a bit of a jungle it was all the companies are all the same you know Deloitte, Accenture, uh, uh, you know Atos, KPMG, Fujitsu they're all the same they all say they're different they're not 
they're all the same people just moving around like prostitutes um, with the same ideas, same partnerships with SAP and Oracle. So you had to be different and it was my job to help our teams be different. And I've now done that for at least four of those companies. Um, what's clear listening to you is that you've taken every aspect of different roles, different experiences, and you've absolutely embedded it into everything that you've done. It, it, yeah. it feels often when I speak to people is that they they miss the learnings and the differences that they've they've taken from the obscure things within that have happened to them, either within their work life or within their personal life, and they're not leveraging and they're not yeah. utilizing it. Thoughts, comments on that? Yeah, ab- absolutely. It's so obvious. It is so obvious, but very few people do it. I mean, in the speaking world where we, you and I initially met a lot of them focus on a traumatic experience and that is it their whole career is about that one dead dog story that they tell um they miss out on so much richness from the background and i think it's it's odd it's odd and i mean i I now talk me i've kind of built a language around this during lockdown about you know being an archaeologist of your own life going back and looking for the stories seeking them out and um you know, trying to find the 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 little nugget, and it could have been just a, a moment on a bus so that you've forgotten about, or and then using that to tell people because it's one of the problems I've got with the guru culture. You know, I, I find people like Simon Sinek in, incredibly boring because all he does is tell other people's stories. You know, he, he's got no experience in business, so he's he's got to take experience from other people and tell, and he's very good at it. And I'm not having a go at him per se, but. I think we've all got a richness and a depth of story that you can actually really help people with. I mean, I talk about the future of work, and but storytelling is a tiny little part of it. Where I go back and I talk about, you know, you know, when I worked in the laboratories or when I worked in the the Olympic Games or when I and people go, huh? But everybody's got those experiences. You know, they just haven't unearthed them, Adam. You know, they just haven't, you know, reflected on them and collated so... them. What would be the piece of advice that you'd give the listeners now to just literally do that? Sit down, um, think about what they've done, write a list of... Yeah. Absolutely. I've, what I did, and it's, it's not sophisticated, um, I sat down during lockdown and I thought, what am I going to do? And someday one of my pals said to me, do something about storytelling. And I was like, huh? And he said, no, you're quite good at it. Tell, tell some stories. So I sat down and I tried to remember, and I did write them down, literally, bullet points. But then what I did was I ran out, I ran out of stories and I thought, well, what am I going to do here? How do I get more of these? So I remembered that one of the things that always helps me is associations. So if I remember, you know, when Princess Di died, that takes me back to a point in my life and I can start to think about, ah, right, I remember that, blah, blah, blah. So what I do, and it's so it's just not sophisticated, I've got a spreadsheet with all the millions of years that I've been alive along the top. Then underneath it, I've got a key event, and I did research that. I looked at a key event in each one of those years, you know, and that helps trigger for me memories. You know, I remember, you know, when, when uh, you know, I don't know, the first time England won the Rugby World Cup, you know, a really bad day for every Scotsman on the planet. Um, you know, how did I feel? Oh, bloody awful. Where was I? And I start. I was in Bath. What was I doing in Bath? Working for the Ministry of Defence. What was I doing at the Ministry? Yeah, yeah. And actually, I don't need to remember these things now because it's all there, you know. 
and it takes it through and now i've got i think i haven't i haven't counted it recently but i think i've got about 400 stories now and a lot of them are really mm -hmm. small you know they're, they're not sophisticated they're not big long stories that you could write a book about with one of these helpful consultants that'll help you write a book you know it, they're just little stories that you can say you know i remember the time when you know this post-it changed my perspective on something and everybody can do that. And I mean, I, I do a thing where uh, quite often we graduates. I used to, I used to do what used to be called. Do you remember the milk round? Yeah, where you went and you got all the all the best students from all the best universities into your company. You're not allowed to say that anymore. That's not not politically correct. But anyway, that's what we used to do. And um, they used to all sit there and go, "You say, you know, why should we employ you?" I was at British Gas at the time, and they go, "Well, you should employ me because I was head of the, the students' union and I was uh, utter drivel, right?" But they were taught to do that. So now when I work with people that age, I say, you know, I'm in, I am and I am genuinely interested in your story. What's your story, big man? Right? And I get them to think about where they grew up, what it was like, you know, what was number one the year they were born? What was you know, what you know, and you can give them a whole range of questions and suddenly there's a little nugget comes out and they go, Oh. And then if they tell that story, it differentiates them. And it's so much more important for that age group now because they've all got degrees, they've all got master's degrees, they've all been taught up the yin-yang about how to apply for jobs. So they're all the same, they're all little robots, you know. And, and, and to help them differentiate themselves, it's their stories. It's not the only thing, but it's their stories that differentiate them because no one else can tell your story. Some cheeky bugger might, and that's happened to me a couple of times, but most of the time, only you can tell your story. It absolutely differentiate. Well, you. you're tapping into the energy. You're tapping into the passion. You're peeling away the onion skin and really getting uh, down. It, yeah. Just listening to you there, um, I distinctly remember where I was uh, when Princess Di, when I found out. I was driving home from a night out. Um, I was intoxicated. I shouldn't have been driving. But I just literally remember oh, hearing and going through a going through a tunnel and literally have a visualization of of how it potentially was gonna wow. gonna happen the the other one for me yeah. um is where were you when 9 11 happened you know that that yeah. I, again i can distinctly remember <clears throat> um uh being in hong kong with my brother when we were traveling um just on a in an internet cafe and literally just the whole internet cafe just stopped and we're watching, it was kind of in the days when yeah. Yahoo was the search engine. So that's how long ago it was. I remember. Uh, but, yeah. but literally yeah. just everybody almost just came around two computers and were just kind of watching a live feed. It was just, oh. Um, right, let's just talk about some of the things. So um, some of your things that you speak on. Leading from the inside out, self-awareness is the differentiator yeah. hiding in plain sight. What does that mean? Yeah. Um. I came across about as about oh, well, I'm sure my age now. Twenty five years ago, I went to see one of these woo woo guys. One of these uh, a guy called Jack Black. You probably heard of Jack. He's a Scottish motivational speaker, and a lot of what he talks about is, is just daft. Um, but he's a very good speaker and a very engaging storyteller. And he introduced me to meditation. And I spent, I've now spent best part of a quarter of a century being a, a, a daily meditator. And I think that has been quite, I call it, a, it's from a poet, John O'Donoghue, it's a, a, a threshold moment. 
you're a moment where you realise that there's more to life than charging through, trying to become as senior as you can, as quick as you can, and coming across as if you know everything. And I think understanding your own, you know, frailties, understanding that you're, you know, the most important leadership competence, I think, is luck. And it's really difficult to study luck and to be lucky, but there are, you know, but those moments of realisation often, for me anyway, come from meditative practice. So um, I do, uh, I don't do it as often as I, I used to because I've not been able to because I've been too blinking busy. So I, I also need to swallow some of my own medicine. But every year I go to a place in the north of Scotland called Pluscarden Abbey. Uh, and that's quite funny because it's a Benedictine monk uh, place and I'm a, I'm a radical atheist, so you know it's quite interesting going up to an abbey every year. But uh, those guys, ah, I love them to bits, and um, they challenge you. They, you know, you have this thing called pittance, and pittance is where basically you, you, your food is called pittance, and and it really is a pittance. <laughs> it's like a tiny little, you know, bowl of porridge twice a day or something, and. I think given your inner system, your 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 yourself a bit of a shock every now and again doesn't do you any harm. At least it doesn't do me any harm. I'm not saying that would work for anybody else, but it works for me. And it gives me time to reflect, to to think about, you know, what am I doing? Am I enjoying it? Uh and if not, why the hell am I still doing it? Um so that that's inner work. I could go on and on and on about it, but that, that basically it's a it's a moment where you just get a chance to have a wee think about yourself uh, rather than the, the busy world of making a living. So a couple of episodes ago, I, I did a podcast explaining how I just got back from a juice retreat where I'd literally oh, just right. had juice for five days, um, put my bo- put my <laughs> body into uh, ketosis. Um, ketosis. And, and in- yeah. interestingly... Um, uh, conversation has been coming up quite a lot and you've you've reprompted it is this aspect of kind of um uh si- like a silent retreat so that's something you know yeah, seven great. to ten days like just it. sitting with self uh listening observing uh, and really being quite skilled yes. i just want to um a couple of things i just yeah. want to pick up on uh, what's a radical atheist well it used to be that where I, I mean where I grew up was it was it was I think it's child abuse actually. Um, they have um, you know religious schools, which I I, I believe is child abuse, um, and you should never tell children what they should believe, particularly when they're that age and vulnerable, and it, it creates these horrible little grown ups that that create all, a lot of the problems. And where I grew up, it was horrible. I mean I remember coming home in floods of tears. Um, one day saying to my mum mummy 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 the fiends are coming to get me and that was the Protestant way of describing Catholics and the, the reason we were different was because we are in different schools so absolutely awful and um, so I've been campaigning to, to abolish religious schools um, via the humanist movement for, for 20 years and um, we're, making, we're making headway um, Big changes in Australia have happened because of it. Um, it's all over the world. We're, we're, we're making serious progress. Uh, so, yeah. But, so it's been actively involved in... I mean, I'm not anti-religion, not at all. In fact, I'd fight for your right to be religious. I'd go I'd go to war for your right to be religious. But don't tell me that I need to follow your religion and don't tell me that I can't criticise it because I sure as hell mm. can. 
Um, I've I've just rewatched uh, the Derry Girls, so um, uh, you know, I, 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 absolutely uh, comedic value. If you've not watched it and you're listening to this, just have a search for the absolutely Derry Girls. Fabulous. Uh, so well written, so well acted. Um, for me personally, I. I spent time in Northern Ireland, so um, you know there's so much bring, yeah. memories bring back. Um, uh, yeah. Something you mentioned before was this aspect of, uh, of peer review, and I, I I'm, I'm a yeah. massive fan of this. So originally for me, qualifying as yeah. a as a teacher, um, peer review was just part of it. You know, especially within your your first yeah. year of teaching, uh, newly NQT year, newly qualified teacher. Uh, you teach a lesson, somebody would observe, you'd sit down afterwards and go, okay, you know, what worked well, even better if, here's what you, you know, you missed on. Yes. And it, for, for yeah. me, it's just, it's always been part uh, critical, first and foremost, self-awareness, but then uh, getting other people to kind of peer review. When, we, when we're thinking about it from a, in a business perspective, why do we not do yeah. more? <laughs> Um, that's just one of the biggest questions in industry, isn't it? I mean, it, um, I think it's it's very complex, so it's difficult to pin it down. It's what they call a multifactorial thing. Um, so there's no easy, no guru can come up and tell you it's because of this. Um, no, there's a whole range of reasons why we don't do it. Um, I think part of it's ego, part of it's time, part of it's money, part of it's short-termism, part of it's the city, part of it... I mean, I could go on. I mean, it's, it's so complex. Um, but when you think about it in the cold light of day, it's it's just odd. It's a bit like um, the other one that, that always amazes me, and it's very similar, it's linked to it, of course, is is um, what they call in the military, after-action reviews, you know, where you, you have a look at what you did in that project or in that campaign and, and note down what you can learn from it. I have never come across a company that does that well. Never. I've worked in over 300 companies now. Never come across a company that does it well. It is astonishing. And it, it, it's so bad. I mean, I won't name the company, but there's one company that I worked with for some time, years. And at one point, um, they were actually bidding for some work and they were bidding against each other. They didn't even, they were so disconnected that two parts of the business were bidding for us the same piece of work with a client. Uh, so that sort of thing uh, astonishes me, but people just don't do it. Um, I think there is some history about you know performance management, which has been never done well anywhere. Um, and I know that's quite a sweeping statement, but I tell you what, I stand by it. Um, you have momentary lapses of quality, but... It is extremely difficult, and I think it's because, and this is one of the joyous things about being a human, you know, um, we are really complicated, and what a lot of companies trying to do is is jib, no, Scottish word, um, sort of forces into um, processes and, 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 and methodologies that are designed to, you know, one, one size fits all, and it just doesn't work, you know, and um, so, it, and I don't really have the answer, because it's just so complicated, so I think the long answer to your question, I think it's just difficult. So Adam, it's just difficult. What's the one or two things that you'd recommend that organisations could, should, potentially do to encourage a little bit more uh, honest conversations, a little bit more peer review where it's safe? Well, I think the one of the things we used to do, another company I used to work with, and this wasn't my idea, it was someone else's idea, was the, the most senior person in the room speaks last. 
um, that came from the military. And that is really interesting because if your listeners think back to the last, if they work in a company, think back to the last meeting you went to, who spoke first? It's nearly always the leader. And people will fight against this, but the reality is we like to follow. We're very easily influenced by the context where we operate in. And there's very, I mean, and again, there's nonsense around this about I'm an independent thinker. No, we, we like to follow, we are, we are group animals, we, you know, we, we do that. And we also like to follow the senior people, the alpha people. Um, so if you have your leader speaking last, you tend, not always, because it's complicated, but you tend to get more of the reality. And then she, at the end, if she speaks at the end, she actually can build her answer on everyone else's answers. She comes across better as well. So it's a bit of a win-win. But a lot of leaders find themselves, and a word, again, the word ego is one I'm not comfortable with because I don't know what it is. Nobody does. They'll say they do, but they don't. Um, whatever that is, there's a behavioural thing that makes us want to be appear to be in charge. And I've been there, so I'm not innocent of this at all. You know, But I think if you can somehow force yourself to shop um, and listen to people and then have your piece at the end if you need it, that's a really good way to, to encourage feedback. Um, and the other thing that, particularly for, for senior people who are listening, um, you know, giving feedback is, is really important, but the Jedi skill is asking for it. Very few people, particularly leaders, will say, I mean, I, I remember, and I'll name her, she's called Ursula, and Ursula's chief executive for one of the biggest IT companies in the world, and I've known her for 20 years, and I've worked with her as a mentor for 20 years. I've never been anywhere near as senior as her in, co in com companies. Never, not even close. She calls me and asks me for feedback. You know, and I go, right, and we have a chat about it. And I'm, I do not pull any punches with her. I tell her what I think. Really? You and she, she really me. appreciates it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but she re she really appreciates Adam. And she keeps, she said, she, she's now running one of the biggest, honestly, it begins with a C, massive company. And, and she said to me just last week, she said, oh, I need to speak to you. And I'm like, why? She said, they're all just, they're all just doing, they're all just saying yes all the time. And the company's a state. I need, I need some feedback. I need to talk to somebody. And that is, is, is a lovely compliment. But also she's got over the hump of, of the, being able to ask for feedback. It's a real Jedi Knight. It's a dark skill, dark skill. Um, so you just reminded me, you know that I've ran mastermind groups for the last 12 years. And <clears throat> it's one of the, yeah. uh, one of the things that I love about a room of people, both as a, as a facilitator, but also as a speaker is that you yes. go in, it's like, okay, you know, you, you leave, you leave your persona at the door, you come in, you're a peer, um, everything's yeah. on the table, you know, how you thinking, how you feeling, how you're looking. And it's, you know, it, just yeah. before I just, I, um, uh, a coaching client who's just joined the mastermind, uh, one of the mastermind groups that we run, um, he said, I couldn't believe how open, honest, vulnerable people were. Because leaders don't put themselves in that position of receiving that no. feedback. It's, you know, I think I think it's uh, yeah. so important. Um, <clears throat> we're just coming up towards the, the end, last five minutes or so. Um, one of your big topics is the is the future of work, and you know I think for me yeah. your view on this is really really important 
because of all of the different stories and different experiences and the multifaceted background, um, just give us two or three top top things that you've observed with regards to the future of work. Um, one is in plain sight, but it's really obvious. Um, and some of my colleagues from the past will not believe that I'm, I'm saying this, but I believe now that we measure too much. I think we've gone too far with fetishized measurement. Um, 20 years ago, I was the guy shouting for measurement. Um, now we've gone too far. I think companies are paralyzing themselves by measurement. They're over measuring pointless, pointless measurement. Um, they just need to get on with it. And if what you do, you know, creates a return on humanity, then you're doing okay. You don't need to measure it. Um, so for me, it's about getting the measures right. Uh, and, and the measure that I introduce to companies now is to say, right, I'll tell you what, if you're really that keen on KPIs, I'll give you a new one. And that new one is time well spent. And if things aren't time well spent, you shouldn't be doing them, uh, including listen to this podcast. You know, if you're not getting anything out of it, go away. You know, don't 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 waste your time. You get 28,000 days. It's not very long. Um, so that's certainly one of them. The second one, and this is the, this is a, this is more an area of mine that because of all the experiences I've had, that I've, I've got an advantage, really. Um, the biggest transformational things that are coming are actually, again, quite obvious, you know, and I can rhyme them off, but, you know, digital's got about three or four years left. We're going analog again. That's not um, that's not made up. That's not speculation. The future is analog. The biggest transformational things that are happening are in relation to biology. So you've got biotech, which has come to the fore because of COVID, but it was coming anyway. Uh, so biotech is going to be transformational in, in our organisations. Then you've got things like nanotech. My God, if you've seen the stuff they're doing in nanotech, it, it blows away anything you've seen in AI. And companies are not aware of these things happening. And they're growing so quickly. The, 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 and again, not everyone understands what the word exponential means, but they are growing at an exponential rate. That's incredible. And I said right at the start of this conversation that when I was a, a young scientist, I went and became a kilt maker. The most in-demand uh, talent set now, according to the last, um, there's an annual survey done by a new scientist, uh, and they've been doing it for 40 years or something, it used to be the top 20 skills. The bottom one was biological skills, and the top one was always maths or, or computer skills. Last year, for the first time uh, ever, biology skills are at the top of the list. The world is changing and very few companies understand that stuff and it is utterly beautiful and and, and actually terrifying what's coming over the hill. Um, and it's coming fast and uh, there are some companies that get head of biology at Apple now and you know there are some, there's a lot of the woo-woo merchants talking about things like neuroscience, but they don't know what they're talking about, but, um, but there is a lot of that stuff coming. Um, which is very very exciting. Um, so that for me is, uh, wow. You know, I'm I'm so. I hope I live long enough to see some of this stuff. And I can I tell one one story, one very quick one. What the other the other thing that's going to end in the next ten years is streetlights. There will be no streetlights you built anywhere in the world in the next after about ten years time. Do you know what's going to replace them? trees that glow at night right so that sort of thing is happening all over the world it's not this is not two or three guys at facebook fiddling about with 10 billion dollars this is about 
microbiologist, and not 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 small biology, two or three guys in a garage. The 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 the, the guys who are doing the sort of um, the real creative stuff in their garages just now used to be doing IT. They're now doing biology. You you can buy a DNA kit from Amazon for two hundred dollars. Fifteen years ago. That was about a million pounds to do the same thing, right? And this is happening and nobody in business, has not nobody, but very few people have a clue that this is happening. Totally transformational, proper metamorphosis. You can probably tell from my enthusiasm what I think of it. It is incredible when you when you start to jump, jump into it. I mean, trees that glow at night. Guys, if you don't believe me and you listen to this, just Google it. Google it. it. It's, so when, you, when I hear you say it, it just makes complete obvious sense absolutely yeah Um, just (laughs) i want to pick up on just a couple of things so you mentioned um digitals uh on the decline and we're going back to to analog just going forward forward to analog analog. just explain what you mean by that because i think for me that's a really important point well digital um everyone knows you know when you use your phone a lot what happens to your phone don't know what does it do uh it gets yep. hot. Yeah? And the reason for that is digital computers work on a very simple, digital's a clue, zeros and ones. And there's a little gate, basically, that switches on and off, which is what digital technology is all about. And as we get faster and faster phones and faster and faster microchips, those gates get smaller and smaller and smaller uh, and take more and more energy. It's why they get hot. We're now at molecular level digital gates we can't go any smaller but the demand to go smaller continues and the only way to go smaller is biology so now what the world-class technologists are working on you'll have you'll have heard of um well you might have heard of quantum computing quantum computing is analog computing so it's it's basically messy computing it's not zeros and ones it's all over the place but it happens in a curve Mm -hmm. And, and basically you work at the top of the curve. So you bring in a lot more error, a lot more noise. You know when you get pixelation in a, a, a digital picture? Well, if you look at a, an analog picture, you don't get pixelation. You can keep going deep, keep going. There's no, there's no pixelation. I mean, I'm, I'm very much simplifying it. But that, that's, without a doubt, that's the future because every one of us demands faster, better computers and digital can't do it. Digital just can't do it. So that's why the future's analog. Um, so last question. Um, I know how important music is to your life. Uh, <laughs> Favourite yeah. song and why? Oh, for goodness <laughs> sake. Don't worry me, you're going to ask me that. Um, bloody hell, Adam. Um, probably... Probably wish you were here by Pink Floyd. Um, why? Because when I was um, second year at university, I was struggling for money. My grandfather had just died; he was one of my mentors, and every night I used to go to sleep listening to "Wish You Were Here." And not only is it one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever written. Um, with some of the best the guitar sound 
Dave Gilmore's guitar sound and uh, everything else about that piece of music, I, I still think it is a glorious piece of music. And and if you haven't heard it, I'm so jealous because people go and listen to it because it is, it is faultless in terms of a piece of... Some music you dance to, but some music has to be listened to. And Pink Floyd's music you listen to. So that's certainly from from my childhood. That's my favourite piece of music. Thank you for sharing. Um, Scott, where can people find you? Hashtag Scott Speaks across the platforms. It's the easiest way to find me. Uh, no one else use that, uses that hashtag. The other one is hashtag Artifact Live, which is my storytelling work. Um, then Scott underscore MacArthur on Twitter. Um, yeah, it's not difficult to find me on the on social uh, Scott, media. Scott, this has been um, an absolute pleasure. Uh, as I say, as I said when I kind of started the uh, this conversation, I remember sitting next to you at an event. Um, I think you were in your kilt. You were in your that. kilt actually. Um, <laughs> and I, I just remember sitting there, and it was almost as if uh, everything else in the room uh, didn't make any difference. The the conversation we had was uh, was intense. Uh, articulate and I and I loved it and I know that we've not seen each other massively over the years but um I, no, I'm massive, I, I value you um as a as a friend but also as somebody that that thinks outside the box uh and uh, I, I, that's what I love about you I, you know I've really enjoyed just mm, listening to you. to your stories and I, I massively appreciate uh, you. you sharing um this is the Frank and Phyllis leadership podcast I've been your host Adam Harris uh, until next time, I'll see you very soon. Thank you. This has been the Frank and Fearless Leadership Podcast. If you've enjoyed, uh, which you must have done because you've listened to the end, uh, that's great. I appreciate you sharing uh, with just one other person that you feel would uh, take value from it. Um, and I look forward to you joining me next time. And whoever I speak to, whatever I speak to, uh, just in the flow. Uh, enjoy your day, enjoy what you're doing, and I'll see you next time on the Frank and Fearless Leadership Podcast. Bye for now.